welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, and I'm glad to once again be delivering your dose of death after a little hiatus. I had midterms last week for my cremation class and thanatology, so I had to take some time to study. I did get A's on my exams, which is great, but I didn't have any time to finish editing, so this week's episode is actually going to be an old episode from my YouTube channel. I decided to put all three parts of The Boy Next Door together for one big serial killer episode. The audio is going to be the same, and even though I didn't originally write the script with the intention of adding sound effects, I was still able to add some to the episode to make it a little more immersive. The next week, I'll have a brand new episode for you, and it's a big one. I believe it's a little over an hour long, and it's a complex story with a lot of key characters and a lot of moving parts. But also, if you're interested in exclusive content and early access to episodes, I do have a bonus episode on Patreon already. I had originally released it to YouTube, but they flagged it and took it down because of the content. Um, It's titled, I am a blue whale, and it's about the blue whale suicide game that's supposedly to blame for a slew of teen suicides around the globe. Um, There are graphic pictures on there, and the content itself was unsuitable for YouTube, but if you're interested in seeing the episode, you can visit patreon.com slash storiesfromthemortuary, or if you visit the Stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel, there's a link to the Patreon on the channel page. Before we begin today's story, I'm going to ask for your help again in another missing indigenous woman's case. The Oregon State Police wanted to highlight this missing person's case from 1997 in hopes that it might trigger someone's memory. So on August 27, 1997, Lisa Pearl Brisano was reported missing by her sister from Portland, Oregon. Lisa was last seen leaving with her boyfriend in a white 1983 BMW with Oregon plates U2L-625. The vehicle was later recovered. At the time of her disappearance, Lisa was 28 years old, 5'4", 200 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. When she was last seen, she was wearing a cream-colored blouse and blue-flowered pants. Lisa's a member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Oregon. There's not a lot of information on this case, but today Lisa would be 52 years of age. Her family, friends, and tribal community have never given up hope in locating Lisa and bringing her home. If you have any information regarding Lisa's disappearance or circumstances leading up to her disappearance, please contact the Portland Police Bureau via email to missing at portlandoregon.gov. The National Missing and Unidentified Person System, also known as NAMIS, is a national information clearinghouse and resource center for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons cases across the United States. So her NAMIS ID is pound mp17435 and i don't know if the pound mp is part of it or if her missing persons number is just 17435 but you could try both of those her portland police bureau case number is 97-89040 and her case investigator is detective heidi helwig I'll include links to the Facebook posts that contain this information and a picture of Lisa, along with all of my sources for this episode in the show notes. Now, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. According to the FBI, in the past 30 years, multiple definitions of serial murder have been used by law enforcement, clinicians, academia, and researchers. The term serial killings means a series of three or more killings, 
not less than one of which was committed within the United States, having common characteristics such as to suggest the reasonable possibility that the crimes were committed by the same actor or actors. With that being said, can an unsolved cold case from the 90s be related to murders over a thousand miles away nearly a decade later? It was not long after sunrise on the morning of August 14, 1993. Rick Picaccio had just walked out of the garage of his Glenview, Illinois home to go to his van. Out of the corner of his eye, he spotted two petite tennis shoes sticking up from the ground. As he approached the shoes, he realized that his 18-year-old daughter was splayed out on the landing leading to the front door. Doug Picaccio, Trisha's brother, remembered waking up to the blood-curdling scream of his father. Rick cried out to Doug to call 911. And when the police arrived, Rick made an unthinkable call to his wife Diane at work. Trisha Picaccio's close friend Karen Jones spent a lot of time at the Picaccio house, who said that Diane, the mother, was very caring and treated her like one of her own. Trisha's younger brothers, 17-year-old Doug and 13-year-old Tommy, often had their friends over. On the night of August 13th, Karen, Trisha, and most of the kids from their senior class went out. One last hurrah for the summer. This was an especially exciting time in Trisha's life. She was just a few days away from the next chapter in her life as a freshman at Purdue University. During her time at Purdue, she was going to study engineering and environmental issues. Trisha was a tenacious young woman who throughout high school studied calculus, was on the debate team, and played clarinet in the school band. Born on January 18, 1975, Trisha Lynn Picaccio spent her early life in Evanston, Illinois. She was known to be happy and energetic, and she was very close with her family. Trisha never did anything to put herself in harm's way. She was the type of girl that you knew where she was, what she was doing, and you never had to worry about her. Her mother, Diane Picaccio, recalled that she had a great attitude about everything, and she knew what she wanted out of life. Trisha was an amazing girl. On the night of August 13th, just after graduating from Glenbrook South High School, a group got together for a scavenger hunt. This was one of the final parties of the summer before they all went off to college. As Trisha got ready for the night, she put on a white polo shirt, cut off faded blue jeans, and white tennis shoes. Her nails were pink, and she adorned her fingers with rings, and she soon departed for the scavenger hunt. After the hunt ended, the friends concluded the evening at a restaurant and then started getting into their cars to go home. It was around 1 a.m. as Trisha walked toward the door of the house, keys in hand, that the killer grabbed her left arm, twisting it and then stabbing her 12 times. She lay just feet from the door, her small body, 106 pounds and just shy of five feet, was covered in blood that began to pool underneath her. Dr. Robert A. Kirshner performed Trisha's autopsy on August 15, 1993. Out of the 12 stab wounds on her body, six were centralized on her left arm just below the shoulder. 
In anatomical terms, this area is referred to as the axillary region. One of the wounds, identified as stab wound number one in the autopsy report, passed through her esophagus, subsequently perforating her trachea. Stab wound number two, punctured one of her lungs through the space between her ribs known as intercostal spaces. This same stab wound also penetrated her heart through the left ventricle. The injury identified as stab wound number four, the autopsy states, passes through the fundus of the stomach. The fundus of the stomach is the upper rounded region on the very top of the organ. Her left arm, which had been twisted by her attacker, bore a spiral fracture through the shaft of the humerus. The humerus is the long bone that makes up the upper arm, known as the brachial region. There was no weapon at the crime scene, no fingerprints, and no other evidence other than foreign DNA under Trisha's fingernails. While the foreign DNA left behind may have been incredibly useful in this case if it happened today, in 1993, DNA testing was still improving. According to the DNA Diagnostic Center, in the 1990s, DNA history first introduced polymerase chain reaction, or PCR testing. PCR testing has ultimately stood the test of time, as it's one of the primary ways that COVID-19 is detected from a nasal swab sample. CODIS, which stands for Combined DNA Index System, had been established three years prior to Trisha's murder. However, at the time, the DNA found under her fingernails could only be identified if the perpetrator's DNA was already logged in the system. As of 1993, there was no match. Starting in August of that year, detectives interviewed dozens of people. Some parents were too afraid to even let their kids talk. No one seemed to know anything. There were no leads, no arrests. Rick Picaccio had no idea how to go on living in the same house where he had found the butchered body of his beautiful daughter. The family moved out for four years. Eventually, they decided it was time to come back home. Shortly after, they had an unexpected visitor. Former high school football player Michael Gargiulo, one of Doug Picaccio's closest childhood friends. Diane Picaccio said that the family had known Michael since he was in second grade because he had lived on the next street. Although he wasn't friends with Trisha, they attended the same high school. Michael showed up at the door saying that he needed to talk to Rick. Diane told Michael that Rick was at work, to which he asked if he could wait. Michael sat and waited at the kitchen table for over an hour for Rick to come home from work. Rick remembered walking in the garage door and looking at him, noting that he had this look on his face as if he wanted to tell him something. Before Michael Gargiulo had the chance to say anything, the garage door opened and his father and one of his sisters entered. They told him that they had to leave and whisked him away. At that point, Rick thought Michael knew something or that maybe he had something to do with his daughter's murder. The Picaccios told authorities, but it was too late. Michael Gargiulo had disappeared. Trisha's parents didn't have any closure when they buried their daughter. Trisha Picaccio rests in Maryhill Catholic Cemetery in Mausoleum Niles in Cook County, Illinois. She's remembered for her charming smile and tenacity and is dearly missed by friends and family. 
but would there ever be closure for the Picaccios? Did Michael Gargiulo know something about the person who killed Trisha? After being murdered in August of 1993, Trisha Picaccio's case remained cold throughout the 90s. Michael Gargiulo was no longer in Illinois, and the Picaccios had no closure. Though it seemed no one had information about their daughter, Rick Picaccio swore Michael knew something. As the Picaccio's life stood still, Michael Gargiulo's life moved on. Soon after he left Chicago, Michael turned up in Los Angeles. Like a lot of other dreamers, he wanted to be an actor or model. According to Temple Brown, a film director, he was interested in getting into acting. Temple was still in film school at USC when he cast Michael as a boxer. Anthony DiLorenzo and Tamer Leary worked with Michael Gargiulo in the late 1990s around the same time he filmed the movie. They were all bouncers together at a Hollywood nightclub called the Rainbow Bar and Grill. He told Tamer and Anthony that he was training to be a pro fighter, acting, and modeling, but by the early 2000s, Michael moved on from the nightclub and began working for a heating and cooling company. In 2001, a young man named Chris Duran was changing his flat tire one day when a man came walking down the street. He stopped and offered to help Chris change the tire. At the same time, 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin came out of the house she was renting on the street. The young man, Michael Gargiulo, noticed. After Chris told Michael that he didn't need any help, Michael stood there talking with Ashley. They exchanged numbers after talking for a bit. Ashley Lauren Elrin, born July 16, 1978 in Los Altos, California, was a fun and spontaneous young woman. She spent her early life in the Silicon Valley of Los Altos. There she graduated from Los Altos High School, where she was an active swimmer. She enrolled as a part-time student at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles in the fall of 2000. In order to pay for school, Ashley worked at a makeup counter during the day and was an exotic dancer at Club Cheetah in Las Vegas at night. Her friends described her as amazing and charismatic. She could go into a room and just take complete control over the room. She was beautiful, fun, and had a lot of friends. The guy she and her friends only knew as Mike kept trying to spend time with Ashley. He frequently called the house after their run-in. Soon, he began showing up uninvited. The friends recalled one night he walked into the house during a party, sat down, and was laser-focused on Ashley. But Ashley was not interested. In fact, Ashley had already begun talking to a man before the night of the party. It was then up-and-coming TV actor from That 70s Show, Ashton Kutcher. Ashley, her roommate Jennifer DeSisto, and their friends Chris Duran and Justin Peterson had even hung out with Ashton Kutcher a few times already. The couple met through mutual friends in December of 2000, and on the night of February 21st, 2001, Ashton and Ashley had plans to go to a Grammys after party. This was an exciting night for Ashley. She and Ashton were quite fond of each other, and the party would provide a much-needed break from work and school. It was also a nice break from the harassment Ashley had been experiencing lately. 
The man known to her as Mike had been arriving at the house unannounced and offering to fix things for Ashley. Ashton last spoke to Ashley around 8.24 p.m. on February 21st to tell her that he was running late. Ashley was using a friend's phone because she said that hers wasn't working properly. Around 10 p.m., Ashton decided to go to the house because he realized it was late. When he called both Ashley's phone and her friend's phone, there were no response. He wasn't alarmed at the missed calls and figured that Ashley was just upset at him for being late. Ashton arrived between 10.30 and 10.45 p.m. and noticed the security gate was open. He walked to the front door and knocked, but no one answered. Again, he wasn't concerned and figured she left with her friend because he was late. However, he realized all the lights were on despite the front door being locked and knocked a couple more times with no reply, figuring maybe she was upset with him. When Ashton peered through the window, he saw what he thought was red wine on the carpet. The next morning, Ashley's roommate, Jennifer, came home. Upon entering the house, Jennifer noticed Ashley was laying across the stairs covered in blood. Jennifer thought Ashley's attacker might still be there, so she ran out the door. She frantically locked herself in her car and called 911 from her cell phone. When the police arrived, they discovered that Ashley Elrin had been attacked just after taking a shower. Her body was lying just outside the bathroom. It was clear from the crime scene that Ashley was preparing for her date with Ashton Kutcher when she was attacked. The bathtub was still damp, her hair dryer was sitting on the counter, and her curling iron had been left on the toilet seat. Her hair looked as if it hadn't even been dried yet. There was blood everywhere, including the doors, walls, and floors, and it had saturated the carpet. According to the autopsy, Ashley was stabbed 47 times. Her injuries included a neck wound that nearly severed her head and deep punctures to the chest, stomach, and back that in some cases were up to six inches deep. According to Detective Tom Small, one stab wound penetrated the skull and took out a chunk of the skull like a puzzle piece. Jennifer insisted that Ashley's attacker was either familiar with her or knew her. Their residence was double-gated and there were no signs of forced entry. Detective Tom Small says there was little to go on. There was no blood spatter outside, no pieces of clothing, no other material that would lead the investigators to one particular individual. They had teams of detectives searching the interior and exterior. They walked the streets, canvassed every building, and knocked on every door. At the time, police were primarily interested in speaking to Ashton Kutcher, as he was the last person who spoke to Ashley and had plans to meet her that evening. However, Ashton wasn't the only man police were interested in talking to. Mark Durbin, a not-so-famous actor, was Ashley's property manager. Mark and Ashley were secretly having a relationship, and he and Ashley had been intimate earlier that evening. But, like Ashton, he had fully cooperated with investigators, and both men were ruled out as possible suspects. While police had no concrete leads, Ashley's friends couldn't shake the feeling that the guy who had seemed fixated on Ashley was involved. Although Ashley's friends mentioned Mike to police, Michael Garjula wasn't really on Detective Tom Small's radar. 
Back in 1999, Cook County Sheriff Detective Lou Sala was assigned to Trisha Picaccio's case. This time, they had the benefit of technology when they took the case over. By 2002, new DNA technology allowed investigators to take a fresh look at evidence collected from the crime scene. Detective Lou Sala was hoping to establish some type of DNA profile in order to give them an idea of a possible offender. Their big break came from the unknown male contributor from the fingernails. Now, they had to match it. At that point, detectives began a DNA campaign of everybody, including the Picaccio family and friends of Trisha's that were with her on the night of the scavenger hunt. They also wanted samples from anyone they had initially interviewed, and Michael Gargiulo was on their list. Detectives heard Michael was now living in Los Angeles, so they went to the LAPD for help. Over in Los Angeles, Detective Tom Small recently identified who Michael was and started conducting their own investigation. By now, Detective Small had begun to take a closer look at Michael Gargiulo. When Detective Sala showed up in LA and met with Detective Small, Small showed a photo of Michael Gargiulo and asked if this is who Cook County was looking for. Michael Gargiulo was indeed the man in the photo and who Detective Sala was looking for. And upon asking how the LAPD knew about Michael, Detective Small related that he's a potential suspect in an ongoing murder investigation. Detective Small agreed to help Cook County find Gargiulo and collect a DNA sample. Will the DNA sample finally give detectives the answers they've been looking for? Is Michael Gargiulo guilty or just unlucky? Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is MS underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. In 2002, almost 10 years after Trisha Picaccio's murder, the LAPD caught up with Michael Gargiulo. Detective Tom Small obtained Michael's DNA sample. He wasn't very cooperative, but it got done. The DNA sample was sent to the Illinois State Police Crime Lab and compared to the foreign DNA found under Trisha's fingernails. The results were a match. It was Michael Gargiulo's DNA on Trisha's fingernails. But was the case closed? Not exactly. Detective Lou Sala of Cook County, Illinois, thought the match was enough to move forward, but there also needed to be some type of corroborating evidence other than the DNA. This was because Michael Gargiulo's DNA might have gotten onto Trisha in a way that had nothing to do with the murder. At the time, he was a friend of the family and it could have gotten there by casual contact. The day before her murder, Michael was with another friend, Scott Olson, when they saw Trisha. They drove past the Picaccio's house and they saw Trisha rounding the corner walking away from them. Michael was driving and he swerved over and slowed down until he was right behind her. The boy saw that she was crying. 
According to Scott, <laughs> Trisha asked for a ride. She got in the car and asked for a ride to a friend's house. They dropped her off and never saw her again. Jack Blakey from the Cook County State's Attorney's Office confirmed that because of that ride, and because Michael had spent time at the family home, he couldn't be sure if Michael's DNA on Trisha was from the attack. With nothing else tying him to Trisha Picaccio's or Ashley Ellerin's death, Michael Garjula was only a guy who had the bad luck of knowing two different women who had been murdered in the exactly the same way. Michael left Hollywood and continued doing what he always did, never staying in one place for too long. Over the next few years, Michael Gargiulo had several girlfriends and even became a father. In 2005, he settled in suburban El Monte, 20 miles east of Hollywood. Then, just before Christmas that same year, in that same neighborhood, there was a murder. The victim was another attractive young woman. The victim was a 90-pound, 32-year-old woman who was defenseless, asleep in her bed in her home the one place in the world she would feel most secure. Her name was Maria Bruno. Maria Bruno was born on the 13th of July in 1970, and she had come to the US from El Salvador as an adolescent. She met and married her husband when she was a young woman. By 2005, Maria was a mother of four who recently started a new chapter in her life. Her husband Irving had custody of their children. Like Trisha Picaccio and Ashley Elrin, Maria Bruno was an outgoing and friendly woman. She expressed her fun-loving and playful side with a rose tattoo on her lower belly and a butterfly tattoo on her lower back. In the months before her death, Maria and her husband had several violent fights, including one where her husband punched her in the face. She left him and found an apartment in a gated complex. She had picked that building specifically because it was very secure. The front door required either a passcode or a key to enter. Maria moved into this apartment just 10 days prior to her death. On December 1st, 2005, Maria and Irving went out to dinner. After she arrived home and went to bed, her attacker entered through her kitchen window and grabbed a weapon. According to the autopsy report, Maria Bruno's death was ascribed to sharp force trauma. The sharp force trauma included a large incised wound of the neck, which was fatal, involving great blood vessels, jugular veins, carotid arteries, larynx, trachea, nasopharynx, and cervical vertebrae column at C3-4. Furthermore, there were 16 other stab wounds, including three additional fatal wounds and three additional possibly fatal wounds, eight non-fatal wounds, and one defense wound of the forearm. The autopsy report also revealed apparent post-mortem mutilation with removal of nipples and adjacent skin, as well as underlying bilateral breast implants with multiple post-mortem stab wounds noted in the left breast and left breast implant. Maria also had bruises covering her legs. Unlike Trisha Picaccio and Ashley Ellerin, Maria Bruno was somewhat mutilated post-mortem. After slicing off her nipples, Maria's killer placed one of them over her mouth. There is very little evidence left behind, except for one blue cotton booty found in the courtyard outside Maria Bruno's apartment. It was confirmed to be linked to the crime scene, as there had been a single drop of blood on the sole, 
and DNA testing proved it to be Maria's blood. Police immediately took a hard look at Maria's estranged husband. There was the history of a turbulent relationship, and drops of Maria's blood were found in his car. But Maria's husband told police that earlier that evening, he and Maria had decided to rekindle their relationship. They went to a restaurant, where the manager confirmed Maria had cut her finger and was bleeding as they left. Just like Trisha Picaccio, then Ashley Ellerin, Maria Bruno's vicious murder eventually turned into a cold case. As for Michael Gargiulo, his romantic life was once again in turmoil. He left his girlfriend and new baby in suburban Los Angeles and headed to the beach, Santa Monica. And once again, where Gargiulo went, an attack eventually followed. On April 28th, 2008 in Santa Monica, another break-in, another brutal assault. But this attack would change everything. Sergeant Richard Lewis got a call at about 12.30 in the morning and was asked to respond to the scene of a stabbing or attempted murder. The scene revealed that the assailant gained access into a window, which was open a few inches. Once he got inside, he opened the front door to prepare his escape route. The assailant proceeded into the bedroom where the victim was sleeping, and what awoke her was a knife being plunged into her. She was stabbed multiple times in her chest, shoulder, and right arm. She suffered several wounds to both of her hands from grabbing the knife as it was being plunged down upon her. The victim was 26-year-old Michelle Murphy. As Michelle, all of 5-1, was fighting for her life, the blade slipped back and forth, and somewhere in the struggle, the attacker was also cut, leaving DNA evidence behind on Michelle's bed. When there was a lull in the attack, she was able to get her feet up underneath her attacker and kick him off of her. The attacker stumbled off the bed and out of the room. Bleeding profusely from her multiple stab wounds, Michelle ran after the hooded man down the hallway to the front door. As Michelle's attacker ran out of the front door, he told her, I'm sorry. As he made his escape, he left a trail of blood on the front steps. About 25 days after submitting this sample to the crime lab, Sergeant Richard Lewis was informed by a criminalist that there was a DNA hit. It was a conclusive match for Michael Gargiulo. The lab was able to make the match because Michael's DNA had been collected for testing in Trisha Picaccio's case and was already on file. Just as in the case of Trisha, Ashley, and Maria, Michael lived just yards away from Michelle. Within 24 hours of making that DNA match, Michael Gargiulo was arrested for the assault of Michelle Murphy. His response to being taken into custody was, which agency is this? Sergeant Richard Lewis said that this response revealed a lot, specifically that Michael Gargiulo wasn't sure which crime he was getting charged for. To Sergeant Richard Lewis, this meant that there were multiple crimes and, quite possibly, multiple states involved. Sergeant Lewis was reminded of a conversation he'd once had with Detective Lillenfield about a similar murder that had happened three years earlier in El Monte, just outside of Los Angeles. Detective Mark Lillianfield got a call from Sergeant Richard Lewis from the Santa Monica Police Department. He had a case that was very similar. Luckily, his victim survived, and this time Sergeant Richard Lewis had identified a suspect. Coincidentally, 
Michael Gargiulo once lived close enough to Maria Bruno to watch her. She reported to friends run-ins with the, quote, strange guy across the way. Now, the pieces of the puzzle were finally starting to come together. In Michael Gargiulo's old apartment just across the way, the attic housed a vital piece of new evidence, a blue booty that matched the one that was found in front of Maria's apartment. The booty was blue and cotton, the same manufacturer, same make, and same model. In the 2001 murder of Ashley Elrin, Michael Gargiulo lived only a couple blocks away from her too. He was also frequently seen hanging out with his dog at the park directly across the street from Ashley's home. Within a month, Michael Gargiulo was charged with the murders of Ashley Elrin and Maria Bruno. In Chicago, when Trisha Picaccio's family heard that Michael Gargiulo had been arrested in LA, they were certain that he would soon be charged with Trisha's murder. But nothing happened. Then, in 2011, 48 Hours aired their episode titled The Boy Next Door on the so-called Hollywood Ripper and the unsolved murder of Trisha Picaccio. Almost immediately after the show aired, a witness reached out to correspondent Maureen Maher. Tamara Leary watched the 48-hour special and saw the mugshot of Mike. Tamara Leary was one of Michael Gargiulo's bouncer buddies from Hollywood. Tamara also reached out to Anthony. They had pieces of the puzzle that investigators didn't even know existed. While cruising down Sunset Boulevard, Michael told Tamara and Anthony that he had murdered a girl in Chicago. He said that he left the bitch on the steps for dead. 48 Hours then put them in touch with Chicago authorities, and soon Michael Gargiulo was indicted for the murder of Trisha Picaccio, 18 years after her death. But the Picaccio search for justice was just beginning. There was a long road ahead full of unexpected twists and turns. Mary Fulganiti, formal federal prosecutor and 48 Hours consultant, is on the record as stating, This is not a typical murder case. This is the systematic slaughtering of beautiful women by a serial killer. Four young women, only one survivor. The Hollywood Ripper is one of the most horrible cases I've ever seen. This is a man who spied on them, who stalked them, and then brutally stabbed them to death. And that's defendant Michael Gargiulo. In a town known for keeping secrets, the murder trial of Michael Gargiulo, nicknamed the Hollywood Ripper, could reveal a hidden life. It's taken Gargiulo longer to go to trial than any other inmate in the history of the LA County Jail, nearly 11 years. There have been nearly 100 hearings, he's fired attorneys and even tried to represent himself. But now, with a new high-powered, court-appointed legal team, the wait is over. The prosecution started with its strongest case and most powerful witness. Michelle Murphy never saw her attacker's face, but she noticed that he was left-handed. In the struggle, the attacker was also cut, leaving his blood all over the bedroom. According to prosecutor Dan Ackman, Michael Gargiulo's blood and DNA were found on Michelle's bedspread and sheet and in the blood trail across the alley. Three years before Michelle Murphy's attack, Maria Bruno, a mother of four young children, was stabbed 17 times. On December 1, 2005, Michael entered Maria's apartment through a window, 
put on blue surgical booties, and mutilated Maria with a knife as she slept. The prosecution argued that the pattern and direction of blood drops showed that the killer was left-handed, just like Murphy's attacker, and just like Michael Gargiulo. This time, the killer left something behind, the blue surgical booty. Forensic analysis showed that there were drops of Maria's blood on the booty, and Michael's DNA was around the elastic band. Four years before Maria Bruno, there was Ashley Ellerin, a 22-year-old fashion student in Hollywood. Michael, who lived within a short distance from Ashley's house and frequented the dog park across from her house, injected himself into Ashley's life. On February 21, 2001, within weeks of Gargiulo fixating on Ashley, surveilling her home at odd hours, Ashley Elrin was found stabbed to death in the hallway just outside her bathroom. Ashley had been stabbed over 47 times. The methodical and systematic slaughter of women is what the prosecution wanted to dissect. The prosecution painted a portrait of Michael Gargiulo throughout his life. He was violent towards women, interested in serial killer Ted Bundy, and studied forensic science. Mike was a strange guy, says Mirko Hoffman, a man who now describes himself as Michael Gargiulo's former best friend. Michael told Mirko he could get away with committing crimes because he studied forensic science. Mirko said that Michael would go online and learn whatever he could find about forensics. He would take notes from other criminals' mistakes in order to learn how to get away with a crime. He told Mirko if he ever got caught committing any crime, he would just lie until he dies. Lie, lie, until you die. Prosecutor Garrett Dameron states that Michael Gargiulo studied a book that taught you how to kill with a knife. The Anarchist Cookbook talks about knives, the perfect guide to committing some of these crimes, detailing how you go for the throat. Twenty similarities between the attacks of the four women were described. Those common characteristics of these crimes point to one man, one killer, Michael Gargiulo. The three-month trial of Michael Gargiulo captured the public's attention. For the families of the victims, the wait for justice seemed endless. Finally, the finish seemed to be in sight, as the jury began its deliberations on August 12, 2019. But in what might seem like a short time, given such a long trial, after three and a half days of deliberations, the verdicts were in. Michael Gargiulo was guilty of attacking Michelle Murphy, Maria Bruno, and Ashley Elrin. Trisha Picaccio's case was included in California only as supporting evidence of Michael Gargiulo's criminal pattern. It was up to Illinois officials in Cook County to try the case there. Michael Gargiulo is currently awaiting extradition to Illinois for the murder of Trisha Picaccio, and if sentenced, may receive 25 years to life in prison. But despite the guilty verdicts, four lives changed forever, and only one survived to tell her tale. Trisha Lynn Picaccio wasn't just Michael Gargiulo's first victim. She was astonishingly bright and highly ambitious, a young woman with a mission to perpetuate positive change on a global scale. Ashley Lauren Elrin was more than Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend. She was a hardworking and outgoing young woman with goals in her mind and a wish in her heart. Maria Bruno didn't just live across the way from Michael Gargiulo. 
She was a determined and cordial mother of four with a new lease on life. And lastly, Michelle Murphy isn't a victim. She's a survivor, a fighter, and was the crucial element in convicting Michael Gargiulo, the Hollywood Ripper.